this morning I'm going to I'm going to pray for the uh, the Lutheran Church, Trinity Lutheran Church next door, just a couple blocks down. Their pastor Ippy is being officially installed. Like they plug him in today. And uh, he's been serving there for a number of months, almost a year now, but this is like the official you know, hoity-toity service and everything where they install him as the pastor. And he, uh, he obviously, he asked that like myself and the other pastors could somehow be there. Well, we can't be there because we're doing our thing, but I said we'd pray for him. So we're going to pray for Ippy this morning and for his family. Uh, we're also going to pl- pray for uh, just our congregation in general, but we're going to sp- pray, pray specifically for Nancy Poling's two sons, so one who had the motorcycle accident and is still recovering, another one who is suffering from pretty severe COVID right now. And So we're going to pray for those two, and uh, then we'll get into our, our sermon. Father, thank you that um, you know everything about us, you care deeply for us, that you are, like the song says, you are strong and you are kind. You welcome us to come to you with our, our needs and our wants and our fears. And uh, so, Lord, we come and we, we lift up Nancy's two sons to you, Lord, that, um, that Dan would be recovering well um, from the motorcycle accident, that he would be able to come home soon, and that his brain would continue to get back up to speed. We pray that you'd be working in him in that. And we pray for his brother, Lord, that uh, you would be helping him to get over the COVID, that you'd be um, allowing him to get the treatment that he needs and the equipment that he needs, and that he would be able to be breathing strongly soon and be able to uh, get back to normal life soon. For those, Lord, in our congregation who are suffering from long COVID, there are quite a few people who've just been suffering for a long time. Lord, we pray that that suffering would be coming to an end soon, that you'd be restoring them to full health. And Lord, as they wait, may they know that you are with them in their suffering and that their suffering is producing perseverance and it is growing them in their character and their trust in you. Lord, as we come now to your word, to this last section of 1 John, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would help us to hear what it is that you're saying to us through your Apostle John almost 2,000 years ago. Help us to, to know the message you have for us today. Help us to know how to respond to it, Lord, and give us the courage do that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you've been going through our summer series with us on 1 John, you have noticed that 1 John is not a linear book. It doesn't tell a story that goes in a nice straight line, and it's not like Paul's letters that have this structure of, you know, here are some ideas, and these ideas get built on it, and therefore it leads to this. John, we've said, is He's really going in circles. He's saying the same things over and over again in different ways. Last week, we likened that to like a spiral staircase, or my, my favorite version of a spiral staircase is a fire tower. I showed you this picture from the Ash Cave Fire Tower in Hocking Hills region, and I, I asked, has anybody ever climbed a fire tower? And I was amazed, shocked, and I dare say appalled at how, feeble, how few hands went up. So you guys, you got to go check out some fire towers. Now, to help you with this, I made a handy-dandy map that I'd like to share with you. So these are all the fire towers currently still standing in the state of Ohio, color-coded. Green means they're open to the public and safe to climb. Yellow means they may sort of be open or may sort of be safe to climb, but you could probably pull it off. And red means you just shouldn't waste your time going there because it's either about to fall down or you're going to get eaten by a dog on the way there. If you'd like a copy of this because you'd like to go and do some homework and climb some fire towers, I'd be glad to email it to you. You'll notice that the closest one to us is probably Mohican. That's up in the top middle there, Mohican State Park. But the second closest is the one that I showed you the picture of, Ash Cave in um, 
Hocking Hills. Now, you may have noticed that also down at the bottom near camp, there's a green one. And Jen and I are going to camp for a pastor's retreat next Monday through Wednesday. And she loves climbing. No? Okay. All right. Well, anyway, if you get a chance to climb Fire Tower, I encourage you to do it. And the idea is, as you're going up, you see the same thing over and over again from different perspectives, but it changes a little bit as you go. And that's the, how the book of John has been working for us. We say the same ideas, the idea of abiding, the idea of life and of light and of love. And it's just over and over again, we go around in the book of John. And for us in our Western American minds, we're like, John, you are schizophrenic. What are you doing with your book? But for him and for his original audience, it flowed. It made sense as they went up the staircase. So today, we're looking at the last section of John. We're going to start in 1 John 5, 13 and go to the end. It's on page 1023 if you're looking in one of the Black Pew Bibles. We are going to jump around a little bit this morning, but if you want to keep a thumb or a finger in 1 John 5, we'll keep coming back to it even though we are jumping around. So here we go, 1 John 5, 13 through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, John has said this repeatedly throughout the book. He wants us to know that we have eternal life. Can you know if God has saved you? Can you know if you are forgiven? Yes, you can know, and John wants you to know. He has provided different tests, different ways of evaluating. We've seen those throughout the book, But now he gets to the end and he says, one last time, I'm writing this to you so that you can know. But he's not not saying that to everybody. John is not a universalist. He does not believe that everybody will be forgiven and made right and brought into eternity in heaven. He's writing it to particular people and he tells us who those people are. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Believe in the name of the Son of God. That's kind of a weird thing to say. We don't normally speak like that here. We do have a little bit of a connection in modern English, and that is we talk about somebody in town who has a good name. And what we mean by that is really two things. They've, They've got a good reputation. They can be trusted. They are reliable. Their character is strong because... Their, their integrity is intact. Right? They, you know who they are. You can trust and respect who they are. And you know that they will do what they say they will do because they have a track record of doing that. So who they are and what they've done and what they do, that makes someone's name in town good. And I think that helps us understand what John is telling us here. When we believe in the name of Jesus, we're talking about in the person and work of Jesus. This is a phrase that's been around Christianity basically from the beginning, the person and work of Jesus. Who is Jesus? What has he done? When we believe the right things about who he is and what he's done, we are believing in the name, the reputation and work of Jesus. So who is he? I'll bring up our Trinity shield again to remind you that we believe as the Bible witnesses that there's one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equally God and yet still distinct from each other in three persons. That is a unique, in the whole scope of world religions, that is a unique way of understanding the idea of God. 
And we have it witnessed to it all throughout Scripture. If we reject the divinity of Jesus, that is, we say Jesus was a man, a special, a, amazing man, accomplished a lot, taught a lot, started a new world religion, all that, but he was a man. If we say that, we reject the divinity of Christ, then we are not believing in who Jesus really is and who he says he is. He claims to be divine. He does it in multiple ways in the New Testament. And we know that most clearly when he says, before Abraham was, I am. And all the Jewish leaders pick up rocks to stone him because they very clearly understood he is using the name that God used for himself in the Old Testament. He's applying it to himself. He's saying, look, guys, I am divine. And if we, if we strip the divinity of Jesus out of our belief about Jesus, then we reject who he is. We reject the person of Jesus. Well, what has he done? What is the work of Jesus? Primarily, it is that he has come in the flesh, fully God and fully man, and he has taken upon himself our sin and our guilt and our shame. He has died in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve, and rose on the third day, conquering the grave. That is the work of of Jesus. And so when John says he's writing to those who believe in the name of Jesus, I'm telling you the best way to understand that is the name of Jesus is a summary for the person and work of Jesus. Who is Jesus? What has he done? If you are believing in Jesus as the Son of God and God the Son, as the, the propitiation, to use one of John's words that he used earlier, the, the sacrifice to turn away the just wrath of the Father, if you're believing those things, then John is writing this to you. And John would say there's no other option for salvation. So if we flip backwards to Acts 4.12, in a few months when we get a little further in our new series on Acts, we're going to be in Acts 4, and in it there's a particularly stirring speech that the Apostle Peter gives to some folks who want to kill him. And in the middle of his speech, he says this, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. An exclusive claim that Jesus, and here he's talking about the name of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now that we're clear on that, let's go back to 1 John, and he's going he's gonna to help us think about prayer. Because this idea of being uh, born again, being born of God, being uh, the one who believes in the name of Jesus, the person work of Jesus, it doesn't just get you a ticket to heaven one day, but it has great effect on your life today. And one of the great effects of that is that you can be in relationship with God, not just in this fuzzy way, but in a real concrete way, that God invites you to pray to him. And he gives us instruction on how to pray. He gives us guidance on how to pray. And John is about to give us, in a few sentences, he's going to give us some information about prayer because he wants us to be better in our prayers. He wants us to walk closely in fellowship with God through prayer. So verse 14, back in 1 John 5. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. So not just confidence way out in the future, but this is confidence we have right now, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. 
You can see here that the, the idea of this praying, of asking for things, is, is tied closely to the idea of the name of Jesus, because it comes right after that verse where John is talking about the name of Jesus. But if we were to flip back to John 14, 13 and 14, we would see parallel words from Jesus himself giving us more information on this. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Those are the words of Jesus to his disciples. John was there to hear it, and he wrote it down for us. If you take what John just recorded for us in the book of John, Gospel of John, and you take what we had just read in 1 John, that letter that we've been studying all summer, we have to ask, how could this possibly be true? In 1 John, he says, if you ask anything in the will of God, he will grant it to you. Jesus, as recorded for us in the Gospel of John, says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it for you. Does that mean anything we ask, if we put the words in Jesus' name at the end of our prayer, we get it? Absolutely not. God is a loving Heavenly Father, and no loving Father gives their children everything they ask, even if they say pretty please with sprinkles on top at the end, right? So the first John passage gives us one clue. It says, if you ask according to God's will, you will have it. And the John, Gospel of John passage, if you ask anything in my name, and if, if name is a kind of a summary for the idea of the person and work of Jesus, who is he? What is his nature? What, are, what is his character? What is he at work in the world doing? What is he accomplishing? If we ask things that line up with the will of God and the person and work of Jesus, well then, of course, God is eager to answer those prayers. He's putting those thoughts in us anyway. The only reason we would pray such things is because he's working in us to make those our desires. And so when our prayers line up with the will of God, and he has very distinct, specific will, when it lines up with the will of God, yeah, of course he's eager to do it. We'll say, well, why do we have to ask anyway? If it's his will and he's going to do it anyway, why does, like, we're just going through the motions. Ask Steve that next week with the whole providence thing. We'll go on and we'll say that at least for this week right now, we can see that, that God is inviting us into communication with him. He's inviting us to ask and he's giving us an idea of how to ask. He's not specifically telling us what to ask though. I don't know about you guys, but in my own personal, like my, my Nick Dimmick prayer life, not my like official pastor prayer life or when I'm standing in front of you guys and, you know, doing the, the prayer thing in the service, but just me as a person, much of my prayer life focuses on two things. Thankfulness, like I, every time we pray at a meal, I want to make sure that most of what I'm saying in the presence of my kids is thank you, God, for these I want to build thankfulness in myself and in my kids. But then when I'm, when I'm asking for things, at least 90% is really just about me. Right? What, do, what do I want? What do I think I need? Or at least the people that are close to me. God, would you please do this? Would you provide this? Would you make this happen? It's very narrowly focused. Now, when I talk about myself as a pastor or I'm praying for you guys or big things happen in the world, like 
few weeks ago with the whole Afghanistan thing that's still going down. Well, when we pray for those big things, or we think about the anniversary yesterday of September 11th, and we pray for big things, but mostly we tend to focus in on ourselves, right? I had a great example of the opposite of that this week, where I received out of the blue a postcard from somebody that I have never met who lives in Versailles, Kentucky, who somehow became aware of our church and sent me a postcard saying that he's praying for us, praying for me, and he just wants us to be encouraged. Well, that's really cool. That is a whole lot wider than my normal prayer focus of just myself, right? God wants us to pray for other churches, which I forgot to do. I forgot to pray for Ippy. I told you I was going to do that. Let's stop and pray for Ippy. Father, thank you for Pastor Ippy over at the Lutheran Church. Would you uh, encourage him and his family this morning uh, with those who are in authority over him as they lay hands on him in order to commission him there, those who he is serving and he has authority and oversight over them, would you help them to be blessing to him this morning? We pray that his pastorate there would be long and fruitful, that he would be faithful to the gospel, that hearts would be uh, transformed, that lives would be changed, souls would be rescued from hell because of his ministry there. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you for that. Excursies there, let's go back into what we were talking about. God wants us to pray for bigger things than just ourselves. I heard a pastor quote another pastor, and so it's a couple generations removed. I've got no idea who said it the first time, but he said this, and I'll put it up on the screen. If God answered your prayers of the past seven days, would anything in the world change or just your world? What are you looking at, right? We, we can be praying in the will of God, in the name of Jesus, for things so much bigger than even in our lives. We can be praying for missionaries. We can be praying for the persecuted Christians around the world, orphans in great need, all the things that you see on the news, all that we can be praying for all of that. And he wants us to ask in the name of Jesus, not just with magic words tacked on the end, but a prayer that is actually in the name of Jesus. Jesus. All right, John's going to give us more guidance on prayer now. We're going to get to verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What in the world is John talking about? Let me read that again for you. He's talking about prayer again. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, I mean, ask God, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Wait a minute. I mean, what about like Romans 6.23? The wages of sin is death. It doesn't say like the wages of some sin is death, but the wages of sin, like all sin, is death. And you guys have heard me say many times that, you know, as far as whether or not we are in relationship with God, all sin is sin. You may not be Hitler, but you have committed sin against your perfect heavenly father, and you have broken that relationship. And yet John here is saying something that seems confusing to us. He seems to be making distinctions in sin. And how are we to understand that? If you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, you know that there's a specific understanding to this in Roman Catholicism. And I'm going to try to explain that. And I want to share with you that this, there's really good news 
after this. I have good news for you today. If you, if you grew up in the Roman church and you, you have this idea of mortal sin and venial sin. Mortal sin is a sin that leads to death. Mortal mortality, right? And venial, some Latin word that means not quite death, right? So you got death sins and you got not quite death sins. And if you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, you probably spent years with this fear in you that you have committed some mortal sin that removes you from grace, that disqualifies you, that pulls you out of the church and damns you to hell. Or you know you've committed that, but you're not sure if you've like confessed it right and done the right penance in order to make things right and get you back. You just, you're afraid. You don't, you don't know what to do with that. Over the years, lists have been made and definitions have been given. I want to give you just a few examples here of what we're talking about. So the, what makes a mortal sin? It must be a grave matter. It means it's serious. It's not just you know, cheating on a test or something. Although don't cheat on tests. Must be done with full knowledge, so you understand that it's wrong. You're not being deceived by somebody else. You're not you know, kind of innocent in the matter. It's full knowledge. And done with full consent or done on purpose. It's not an, an accident. It's done on purpose. Let's, let's go to the next slide. So murder, suicide, adultery, divorce, fornication, rape, abortion, a whole bunch of other stuff on there. And kind of in general, we would look at this list and we say, yeah, those are serious things and it, they're grave and if it's done with full understanding that this is wrong and full consent is done on purpose, I can see why that would be a big deal. But there are other things on the list. And so here's more to the list. Envy, gluttony, alcohol abuse, pornography, masturbation, cheating, lying, and the list goes on and on. And those things we think, well, that hold on. We're going to label this mortal? Like, if I do this on purpose, understanding, and I don't, confess it and do the right kind of penance? You're saying, I'm going to hell for something on this lower list? No, I, I completely reject this, this man-made system of, of ranking the sins and the man-made system for how you deal with them. Because if there, if there is a sin, I'm sorry, if there's a system that, that requires me to recognize accurately my worst sins confess them and deal with them in some per- certain way with penance to a certain degree, if, if it relies on me to do that so that I don't go to hell, I guarantee you I'm going to hell. And all of us are. Here's the amazing news of the New Testament. You guys, if you've been around, you've heard me quote it so many times, but this is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. That's the good news. It's not a system where you recognize and deal with your sin in a certain way or your toast. It's grace through faith. Free gift of God. And then Paul says very specifically, not your works, not your own working of the system, not your understanding and your dealing with it, and none, none of that stuff. And the reason I share all this with you today is because I know some of you come out of that background and there's that lingering fear. There's that thing in your gut that says, man, I, I know the message of grace. I know the message of salvation by faith alone, and yet I'm afraid. 
What if, what if there really are some sins that are not forgivable just by the free gift of grace received in faith? And doesn't the Bible talk about an unforgivable sin? And didn't we just read a passage where John says, look, some sins lead to death and others don't lead to death and you can pray for these and not these. And That kind of lines up with this Roman Catholic system, right? So what would John be talking about? What kind of sin would lead to death necessarily? And when John would even say, you still don't even bother praying for somebody. That's what he says. This is... Serious stuff, right? What kind of sin would, would lead to that? And I would say the most, the most biblical way of understanding is that that sin that leads to death necessarily, that, that John says is really kind of a hopeless cause, is the sin of unrepentance and unbelief. That if, if you are aware of the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus has paid the penalty for you, that he has made the way for you to be reconciled to God, that you receive that free gift by turning from your sinfulness, your self-ruled life, and placing all of your trust in Christ alone for salvation, if you know that, and yet you choose to disregard it, to write it off, to ignore it, to just reject it, whatever, that is an act of intentional unrepentance and unbelief in the very thing, the only thing that could save you. And that necessarily leads to death. Maybe you're sitting here in the room right now and that's you and you've heard this over and over again and you're, you're holding this, this thing. This, you, you, just, you don't want to accept it. You just refuse to embrace the message of the gospel. That leads to death. I don't want you to die a spiritual death. You are going to die a physical death, but I don't want you to die a spiritual death either. Neither does John. He would call us to wake up. He would say, unrepentance, intentional faithlessness leads to death, necessarily. And I would call you to soften your heart, to not allow your heart to grow harder. I think of Psalm 95, 6 through 8, says this, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel, kneel, before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so if you're here today, and you're hearing the voice of God, you're hearing the call to salvation, and you are refusing to bend your knee to Jesus as Lord, receive his gift of salvation, then hear that last little chunk of sentence. Do not harden your hearts. In John chapter 3, the Gospel of John chapter 3, we have recorded for us a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, one of the leaders of the religious sect of the Pharisees. And Nicodemus, unlike all of his buddies and the Pharisees, Nicodemus was captivated by Jesus. He saw something in Jesus that he couldn't understand, couldn't make sense of, and he wanted answers. He had this list of theological questions that he wanted to ask Jesus, but he couldn't do it in the open because he would be ridiculed by his buddies. And so he came to Jesus in the middle of the night with his list, and Jesus knew that what Nicodemus needed more than getting his list filled out was that Nicodemus needed to become a new creation. He needed to be born again. 
And so they get into their discussion, and Jesus immediately derails it, and he goes this way. John 3, 3 through 6. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, so born of water, the idea of physical birth, born of spirit, this second birth is born again. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Let me read that key line again for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus is real straightforward with Nicodemus. John records it for us, and now we have echoes of that in the letter of 1 John when he says this in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God, born again, born of God, does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So we've got this dichotomy again. You've got the kingdom of God, you've got the kingdom of the world, or the kingdom of Satan. There's this idea of two kingdoms. You're in one of them. You can't be in both of them. We've seen that repeatedly in John. We've seen, again, this call to to sinlessness, this crazy call. He says, anyone born of God does not keep on sinning. Now, we've dealt with this multiple times in John. When we take just a verse there and we say, well, that sounds like if you sin, you have proved that you're not born of God, or you're losing your salvation, or you're, you're getting sent to time out, and maybe God will let you back in eventually, right? And yet, we take the greater context, the stuff that we've always already covered in 1 John, and we realize that John is not threatening the loss of our salvation. He has, in fact, given us great confidence because he's told us that when we sin, we are to do and we are to trust in certain things. So if we went back down that staircase, we got to 1 John 1, 8, 9, we would say this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's writing to people who are already Christians, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If John is simply saying, look, once you're a Christian, you've got to be perfect and if you screw up, you're out, then this verse makes no sense at all. Why would he give us instructions on what to do with our sin? And then even more encouraging in 1 John 2, 1 through 12, we have this, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? That's his goal. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So that song that we sang this morning, Before the Throne of God, is that idea of advocacy. Christ stands before the judge, our loving Father, who must still act as a judge. And he stands as our advocate. And he takes our sentence for us. Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, that's the, the offering that turns away the wrath, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what is John getting at here? Is First John 1 and 2, he said it in 3, which we'll look at in just a moment. We just quoted it from 5. All of this, we keep going around the staircase, we see it differently. Let's look at First John 3, 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, speaking of Jesus, in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. That is true. There is no sin in Jesus. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 
It's quite the statement, John, but we've got to go back to chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we've got to pull all into context to understand what he's saying. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. That's going to be the key thing for us to understand what we're talking about here. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now we dealt with that a number of weeks ago, but let me just remind you, the way that he's wording it there is significant for us. Because the way that he words this helps us make sense of the greater context of 1 John. There's no one who is practicing sin. And so let me ask you, are you practicing sin? Are you practicing? Are you trying to get better at sinning? Are you planning your sin ahead? Are you looking forward to it? Are you figuring out better ways to deceive others so that you can get away with it? That's a level of intentional sin that John is very much concerned with here. And he would say, wake up. Turn from that, lest you be shown to be outside the family of God. All right, we're almost done here. Verse 20, back in chapter 5 of 1 John. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So I just want to point out two things in there. First of all, do you see the, the sovereignty of God at work? in there. God is the sovereign ruler of all things. How do we know about him? It says he has given us understanding. We didn't figure it out. It's not about our smartness. God chooses. If you understand anything of who God is, it is because he has chosen to give you that understanding. It was his sovereign good choice. And then do you also see the the Trinitarian statement, the divinity of Jesus in there. Let's look at that again. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Who's the He? Well, God the Son. It's the He. He is the true God and the eternal life. And that should, should be echoing in your mind, John 14, 6, which we've gone back to repeatedly in this series, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. John heard those words out of the lips of Jesus, recorded them for us. He now echoes them in a different way in 1 John many decades later. Finally, we get to the last sentence. Of first John. It's a little abrupt. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's it. The end. John, come on. You've been going in circles for five chapters and you're like, I'm out of time. I got just like a little bit of ink left. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's it. The whole time he's been swinging back and forth between invitation and challenge and back to invitation and back to challenge. And here at the end, he swings really hard into challenge. 
Now, I'm going to backtrack us in a moment to a couple verses to end us on invitation instead of the challenge. But notice that he doesn't sugarcoat it at all. He just says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, he's, he's writing in a culture um, in what we would t- today call Turkey. He's writing from the city of Ephesus to churches surrounding that area. And the, the city of Ephesus was a center for idol worship. Months from now, Lord willing, we will get to Acts chapter 19, where we see Paul in Ephesus sharing the gospel, multitudes of people leaving behind their former religions, converting entirely to following Jesus, and it messes up the economy of Ephesus because Ephesus was a site of a temple of the goddess Artemis, and lots of people made all kinds of money with the religious tourism that was coming in, and they were selling all kinds of idols of Artemis. Now, I cannot show you a picture of an idol of Artemis, even though there are hundreds of ancient idols of Artemis in existence. They're not exactly PG, and so I'm not going to show them to you. But I will show you a picture that I've shown a few times before. This is, this is a physical idol that my brother kept in his house. I don't know if he still does. This is a Mayan fertility god idol that he kept on the mantle in his house for a long time. Is John talking about physical idols like this or like the Artemis idols that were so important to the economy of Ephesus. Yes, he is talking about that, but more than that, he is warning his readers and he's warning us about what the Bible would refer to as idols of the heart. That goes all the way back to Ezekiel, where God is speaking to Ezekiel and saying that these these bad dudes that he's up against, they have taken their idols into their hearts. They've internalized them. They're not just statues that they're bowing down to. It's false gods, physical things, but they are in their hearts. And that is, for us, the danger today. So if John were writing to us today and could put a footnote after his abrupt ending there, what kind of things might he list for us as dangerous idols of the heart? I would suggest a few things. We could put a whole bunch of stuff on the list here, but things that we tend to worship, revere, respect, fear, prioritize over the one true God. Our security and our safety, absolutely. Our last two years here have shown us that we as a nation, as a people, even as followers of God, we can very easily make idols of security and safety. Now, security and safety are good things, right? We want to be secure. We want to be safe. We want to be healthy and all that. But when our security and our safety take precedence over God and what he has commanded us to do, that is an idol. Now, we don't have to deal with it right now, but there are churches in the United States and around the world that are, are being forced to deal with it. Do we choose safety and security and the obedience to lockdown orders, or do we choose to gather as a church as God has called us to? That tension is very real in many places around the world right now. What about freedom and autonomy? With the way that our country is uh, 
going right now with the, with the orders coming from our White House that are, that are stripping constitutional freedoms and autonomy, there is something inside of us, somebody who's politically inclined like myself and in a conservative, in some ways in a libertarian way, I want to say it right up and say, do not tread on me. I'm not going to comply. You got no right to tell me these things. I am free. I am my own man. I am autonomous. Keep your hands off, right? That's, that's what I feel rise up inside of me because there's this idol in me that makes me think I deserve to be entirely free and autonomous and be able to do whatever I want. I'm going to value it even above God's call to love others. What about money? I have a group of guys that I meet with on Thursday mornings and we study the Bible, and we do some memory verses together, and this last week's memory verse was Matthew 6, 24, in which Jesus says, you cannot love, I'm sorry, you cannot serve both God and money. Jesus just lays it out. You can serve God, you can serve money, you can't serve them both at the same time, according to Jesus, the Son of God. And man, those are tough words. Money can very much be an idol for us. Reputation, so are we fear of being rejected by somebody? Do we, do we put God on the back burner in order to behave in a certain way that those at school or at work or in our family will accept us and love us and want us? Are we putting that fear of people ahead of God? We can idolize our career, our success, whether it's school or sports or work or whatever it is, we can make our success in our endeavors more important to us than God. That is idolatry. Comfort, leisure, recreation, relaxation, entertainment, fun, all good things, all potential idols. John Calvin, about 400 years ago, wrote this. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. We, our hearts manufacture new idols all the time. Check yourself. Where might God be pointing out to you the idols of your heart this morning? Be good, loving, gracious Heavenly Father invites you to repent. And to keep yourself from idols. But let's backtrack. Let's end on some encouragement. Throughout the book of John, as he's circled the staircase multiple times, he keeps coming to this idea of assurance. He's told us that if we are confessing, believing the right things, we have insurance, assurance. If we are loving our brothers and sisters in Christ as a reflection of our love for God, we have assurance. If we, um, if we are obeying the commands of God, most importantly, the, uh, the commands to love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself, if we are obeying those commands, we have assurance. And yet all of those modes of assurance that he's talked about so far, they, they fall short because they are at least in some way resting on us. And if my assurance rests on me, I don't really have assurance. And yet if we go back just a few verses, we see a different kind of assurance. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So, 
John is talking about us Christians who are born of God, but then he's talking about a person who is born of God. And it's two different things in the system. He's talking about Jesus, born of God. Now, he is eternally existent as God the Son, and yet he took on flesh. He was, think of the old King James version of of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus was eternally existent as God the Son, and yet he was begotten. He was conceived. He was birthed, born, not just of the flesh, but of God. That's what John, that's John's pointing to there. He's saying, Jesus, the one who is born of God, what about him? Protects him. Who's the him? It's what he talked about before. Those others of us who are born of God. So the one Jesus, born of God, protects those of us who are born of God, and the evil one does not touch him. And in there, we find a good grounds for assurance. That if you are in Christ, you are secure in him because he holds you secure. He protects you. Just like it wasn't your performance that got you into the family of God, it is not your performance that keeps you in the family of God. It is his his grace, his love for you. He holds on to you. That is the solid ground of assurance. We're going to sing about that with our last song, He Will Hold Me Fast. If you tracked with us, with us through the whole book of 1 John, I want to thank you for spending that time with us. I hope that even though it was twisty and circular, that there's some good soul-nurturing things that got deep down into your heart. And the, the thing that I most want to leave you with is that idea of assurance. And that it doesn't depend on you and your performance, your goodness, your perfection, your sinlessness. It depends on Jesus holding on to you. Let's pray. Father, we are, uh, we are a people that is prone to make all kinds of idols, to prioritize things above you, to value things more than you. Uh, we get worked up about all kinds of things that are less than you, and we ignore you. Lord, we confess our, our idolatry and we ask you to show it to us and root it out from us. May we be a, a people who are quick to repent, turn back to you.